Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I've got a fascinating interview today. Uh, we're talking with Lorraine Kesselberg. She's got a long bio, which I'll get into uh, in a minute when I introduce her for the interview. Uh, she is basically an expert on artificial intelligence and policy around artificial intelligence. She's part of a group that has just authored a set of about a dozen universal guidelines around artificial intelligence. And the reason for the need of having these guidelines will become evident during the interview. But just as a little precursor to the interview, I wanted to talk a couple things that we mentioned in the interview that I didn't actually explain during the interview. So uh, one is the notion of a uh, deep fake. So I've seen this mostly on the media, unfortunately, is in reference to pornography and video pornography, and in particular, taking a famous actress, usually, and superimposing her face on top of a porn actress body who is engaging in pornography uh, because, of course, the real actress would never do that. And apparently there are still people who would like to see it. And the technology has gotten so good that you almost can't tell. There are other uses for deepfakes, however. And uh, another one that you may have seen uh, that I will put a link to in the show notes was one of President Obama doing a, a fake PSA, uh, public service announcement. And the reason this was even possible is because there's so much video of President Obama talking in front of a camera that with all that background information to kind of piece together, the systems are smart enough to basically make his mouth say whatever words you want. Now, in this case, it actually took a voice actor to pretend to do Obama's voice, and uh, Jordan Peele uh, was the person who did it, who does a very good Obama impersonation, and they superimposed the video on top of it to make it look like Obama said it. I'll put a link to that in the show notes so you can see what I mean. It's really quite amazing. In that case, it all revolved around a really good voice actor saying what we wanted them to say. However, it's getting to the point, and there's a company called Liarbird, uh, L-Y-R-E-B-I-R-D, um, who is doing this, and you can look them up on the web, and you'll find some of their examples, where they can actually just, use using multiple recorded versions of somebody's voice, have them say literally anything. Um, now, it's not good enough that you wouldn't notice. It's it's pretty good, but you definitely notice. That's what we call the uncanny valley. Uh, when you're usually it's in reference to CGI and, and movies and things like that, where you see a completely computer generated face usually, and you could say, okay, that's not really a human face. And in fact, it's kind of creeping me out because it's not quite right. Um, if but if you've seen a modern movie like Alita, uh, it just came out in the theaters. It's stunningly believable. It's absolutely amazing. So now we're basically getting to that point with. Uh, recorded audio as well. And all this to say that artificial intelligence can be used and is being used to generate very believable fake things. Uh, there's one more story I want to talk about before we get to the interview. And because I mentioned it briefly in the interview, but I wanted to actually give an example of this uh, before the interview, because it's just, just stunning to me. Uh, there's a group called OpenAI and partially funded or founded by Elon Musk. Um, because he's concerned about AI and wants to make sure that um, the technologies are used for good and not, <laughs> not evil, uh, their group took an AI system 
and fed it a lot of data from the web. And they can pick certain sources like maybe Wikipedia or news sites. Uh, there's a social site called Reddit, R-E-D-D-I-T. If you haven't heard of that, it's very, very popular uh, where people discuss all sorts of things and post articles and uh, and comments and things like that. And basically it fed it a bunch of uh, sample conversations and sample news stories and then asked it to generate basically a news story or an, um, an article snippet with just a minimal prompt. And the results were really creepy. Um, so creepy, in fact, that the, comp- uh, the, uh, the organization has decided not to release the full technology for review because they're afraid that's going to be abused. Though the fact of the matter is that other people are working on this too, and this is going to happen. So uh, let me just give you one sample from this, uh, from this, from this story. And I'll, again, I'll put a link to the full story in the, in the release in the show notes. So you can check that out. And the prompt, the human prompt, the human written prompt for the system was, was as follows. It says a train carriage containing controlled nuclear materials was stolen in Cincinnati today. Its whereabouts are unknown. That's it. Two sentences. With those two sentences, the system was tasked with generating basically a fake news story around that prompt. And here's what a completely automated system wrote based on that prompt. The incident occurred on the downtown train line, which runs from Covington and Ashland stations. In an email to Ohio news outlets, the U.S. Department of Energy said it is working with the Federal Railroad Administration to find the thief. Quote, the theft of this nuclear material will have significant negative consequences on public and environmental health, our workforce, and the economy of our nation, unquote, said Tom Hicks, the U.S. Energy Secretary, in a statement. Again, quoting, our top priority is to secure the theft and ensure it doesn't happen again, unquote. The stolen material was taken from the University of Cincinnati's Research Triangle Park nuclear research site, according to a news release from the department officials. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission did not immediately, immediately release any information. According to the release, the U.S. Department of Energy's Office of Nuclear Material Safety and Security is leading that team's investigation. Again, quoting, The safety of the people, the environment, and the nation's nuclear stockpile is our highest priority, Hicks said. We will get to the bottom of this and make no excuses. That was completely automatically generated. There was no human involved other than programming the system that caused that to happen. And there are several other, several other automatically generated articles on this site, including things about unicorns and other things that are quite obviously not true. But it was really just stunning. And think about how this could be used in influencing people on social media, for example. In the next election, if you know, if we're capable of doing this, you know that other nation states uh, are capable as well. So anyway, with that as a backdrop, let's get to our interview with Lorraine Kisselberg, because there's a lot more to discuss here uh, and some good things about AI as well. Don't we not? We we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's some really good things it could be doing, but we really have to be careful. And that's what her group is about. So let's talk with Lorraine Kisselberg. Lorraine Kisselberg is a scholar with the Electronic Privacy Information Center, EPIC, uh, we've talked about several times in the show, a former professor of media, technology, and society, and a visiting lecturer uh, in the Center of Entrepreneurship at Purdue University, my old university. Uh, she studies the social implications of emerging technologies, including privacy and ethics in emerging technology contexts. Welcome to the show, Lorraine. Thank you, Karen. I'm happy to be here. 
All right, so the reason I reached out to you uh, is the recent work you've done with the Universal Guidelines on uh, Artificial Intelligence. And I ran across those and saw your name associated with it and saw you were with Purdue, and I thought, i, I got to reach out to this person. You should be a great person to interview for the show. Um, so I'd like to uh, just do a quick read of the preamble to these guidelines. You've published these guidelines for the use of artificial intelligence, and uh, I, would, I think it will set the stage for our discussion. So let me just read, uh, start with that preamble to those, uh, those guidelines. Yeah, so we released these guidelines in Brussels, in October of 2018, and essentially the uh, preamble indicates that there are new developments in artificial intelligence that transform the world, from science and industry to government administration and finance. And the rise of AI decision-making also implicates fundamental rights of fairness, accountability, and transparency. So modern data analysis produces significant outcomes that have real-life consequences for people in employment, housing, credit, commerce, and criminal sentencing. And many of these techniques are entirely opaque, leaving individuals unaware whether the decisions were accurate, fair, or maybe even about them. So we propose these universal guidelines to inform and improve the design and the use of AI. The guidelines are intended to maximize the benefits of AI, to minimize the risk, and to ensure the protection of human rights. And these guidelines should be incorporated into ethical standards adopted in national law and international agreements and built into the design of systems. We state clearly that the primary responsibility for AI systems must reside with those institutions that fund, develop, and deploy the systems. Yeah, and that's quite, that's quite a mouthful. Um, but it it's really sets the stage for, I think, what we're going to talk about. So uh, for my audience, uh, let's start with some very basic terms. And I we, I think we get informed by these things through science fiction novels and science fiction movies. Uh, and so I think, you know, a lot of the people have varying degrees to understanding what these things are, what they really mean. So very basics. What is artificial intelligence? Why do we call it artificial? And what do we mean by intelligence? So artificial intelligence, essentially, and simplistically, is using machines to simulate the intelligence of human beings. So we sometimes call it machine intelligence um, and artificial intelligence. But the, but the fundamental element there is that we are trying to simulate the kinds of intelligence that human beings have. Why? So that eventually we could supplement and enhance the kinds of tasks that we perform in our everyday world. So that can include perception of visual elements like facial recognition, speech recognition, which we use a lot in. Everybody knows what Siri is in terms of being able to use, speak into a, a computational device of some kind, and yet understands what you're saying, can process and understand that. So speech recognition processing, um, but also decision-making, which is something that we're running into a sense of discomfort mm -hmm. a lot, uh, language translation. But it also then goes further than that into what we call autonomous control of systems. So self-driving cars, vehicles, autonomous weapons, um, and these kinds of things in which the control, the intelligent control of such systems is handled by a machine and not a human being. So it's funny you mentioned Siri because I think a lot of people think of Siri and think uh, she gets things wrong all the time. <laughs> and so, though obviously we could extrapolate and say it's going to get better, but will computers compute? Will computers ever really think like humans think, or are they just simulating it? 
Well, so the human brain is incredibly complex and intelligence is incredibly complex as well. So artificial intelligence is not a brand new science. It's been around for, for 50 years or so. Um, but initially, it was focused primarily on trying to replicate the ways in which human beings might process information and make a decision. Um, and that in itself was a difficult task because there was not a lot understood about how human intelligence actually takes place. And the early models were very much input-output models in that you feed in some data, you think about the data, and then you spit out some outcomes. So much more simplistic than what we're dealing with now um, in terms of being able not just to process data and make a decision about it, but also to learn from those data and to recognize patterns that may not be explicitly encoded in the language and in that way become more intelligent rather than just capable of performing a task that they've been told by they, I mean, machines have been told to perform. One of the, I've done as a software engineer, I've spent some time recently on machine learning classes and uh, machine learning is tied into this too. And it, it's, these are all computer algorithms where you throw a lot of data at something and you tweak a bunch of parameters uh, to try to get certain outputs. And one of the more interesting things that I've run across is these, what they call, I think, antagonistic models, where they, they take one kind of a system that is trying to produce an output, and then they take another system that is judging that output. And then you kind of using these things against each other to play off each other to improve the eventual output, which I think is fascinating. People like Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking have talked about this, and Ray Kurzweil uh, have talked about this term called a technological singularity, where at yes. some point they believe computers will become self-learning and self-correcting to the point where they will be able to regenerate their own learning and then become and do it so quickly that they will quickly outpace human thought. And that's anyway, so I, I, we're not going to get into that here, but if, I just want to throw that term out because it's often associated with AI. And if I thought the audience might want to look that up if they're interested in that. One thing that's interesting about this, which is different from machine learning, where machine learning is very much grounded in, or at least the uh, machine learning versus deep learning which is what we're, the generation that we're moving into now. But machine learning is very much grounded in statistical prediction mm. and the ability to build models that can predict and make inferences about what might happen based upon what they've learned through past data mm. and um, past input, if you will. We talk differently about the ability of an intelligent machine to be adaptive in order to learn specifically from um, past experiences, past data processes and so forth. Um, then we get into what becomes troubling to individuals. It's not just a matter of making a smart decision as a human uh, being might make, but their ability to move beyond the control of what a human being has instructed them mm. to do. And so that's when it, um, most of the general population begins to express discomfort. <laughs> it has some really interesting implications in many things that I probably shouldn't get into today. But for example, in singularity also implies, for example, when we begin to embed artificial intelligence into our bodies, and then the um, intelligent agents or components 
in our body also are controlling or receiving signals from our brains, acting as interfaces in that way. This becomes really important and, and interesting in understanding the implications of just who is controlling that body. Is it the human brain or is it the artificial component? I will say on a, on a side, interesting note, that I consider myself to be a bionic woman. <laughs> Explain that. I am a bionic woman, and about a decade ago, I was implanted with a cochlear implant, which is somewhat common. Lots of people know people with cochlear implants now. Somewhat common, but it is defined technically to be an artificial agent that's been embedded in my body, and it serves as an interface to accept signals from the external environment and to communicate with my brain in ways to make me understand differently the sounds of my environment. So one might ask, is there a sense of discomfort <laughs> that you are not processing this in a natural way? Mm -hmm. uh, well, no, because I know the advantages of what that system gives to me um, far outweigh the potential discomfort that I might have. And ultimately, at some point, I can take this out. I can't take out the embedded component, but I can take out the component that that allows it to, to be on. So I have some sense of human determination in this, although the processing that's taking place is driven artificially by the way in which that component had been programmed by the people who designed it. Now, there's also an advantage. I'm eligible to upgrade my system <laughs> when I want to. So as these processors and the uh, what they understand about how to understand sound from the environment gets more advanced and gets better, I can upgrade my design at the same time. So I do believe myself to be bionic. So that's kind of a, um, a perhaps a little bit off the beaten path but a sense of relating myself on how I feel about having artificial components that control my body. Well, I love that reference because I actually used to watch that show with Lindsay Wagner back in the day. And uh, of course, Lee Majors and, and the Biotic Man, I used to watch that as well. That was one of my favorite shows as a kid. So another term I want to make sure we define before we go too much further is the concept of an algorithm. Um, as a software engineer, I'm very familiar with this, but the general public I'm sure is may have heard the term uh, but how does that come into play here? And, and, and once you define an algorithm, how do we make an algorithm, quote unquote, fair? So first of all, an algorithm is simply a set of instructions that um, it, it's the foundation of computer science in that um, you have a set of instructions that are telling a machine what to do. Um, and that constitutes a computer language that has been used to um, perform a certain task. So the important part of that is that these set of instructions or sequence of instructions are typically, or they are written by a human being. And the human being who is creating that algorithm comes with his or her own sets of biases that they bring to them. So as we think, at least when we're talking about mathematical algorithms, 
we tend to think, well, there can't be much bias in mathematical algorithms. But a lot of what we're algorithms we're talking about is performing tasks that have some consequence for humans in their everyday, um, everyday, everyday lives. And so the assumptions that are brought to the table when we define these instructions for how to perform a particular task carry the biases of the designers. And so both come forward. Now, I, I think the best example of talking about a biased algorithm, and it's important to indicate that these are not, typically not intentional mm -hmm. bias. We don't want to talk about malicious intent that I purposely did that, um, but rather implicit and unconscious biases that were encountered. So I think one of the best um, examples is one recently that came from Amazon. And last summer last fall, they announced that they had been using an algorithm to assist in their recruitment of new hires uh, for Amazon. And of course, there's a need there because they have thousands of applications that are, cannot be processed in at least at the initial stage by a human being. So to be timely, which is why we rely on um, the algorithms and artificial intelligence in order to respond in a timely way, they created an algorithm that would filter out and create shortlist from these paper-based resumes that were being um, submitted. And they had built what they thought were the characteristics of a successful employee working at Amazon. And those characteristics turned out to be biased mm. against mm. female candidates, specifically. And the reason they were biased against female candidates, again, was not a malicious set of instructions that says, if this candidate is female, give her a lower weight. But rather, what was happening was that the characteristics that they had identified as um, being correlated with a successful employee were based upon their past employees who were mm. primarily <laughs> men. And so because they were primarily men, then what was going to be more likely to be correlated with a successful candidate in the applicants was gender bias towards male versus female. And so... Um, Amazon actually realized that they had a potential problem. It had, had come up, um, had been brought to their attention before they pulled the algorithm, and they tried to fix it. And it just became an intractable issue, and they realized that they couldn't move forward with it ethically and liability reasons as well. And so they pulled the algorithm. So that's an example of how a set of instructions can carry the implicit bias, not only of the people who are um, creating the instruction, but also the implicit bias of the data that's being used to, um, to refine and um, create the model that are predicting the best applicant out of the pool. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. And I, I think what you're saying there is that even if the algorithm itself is done well, it, if you if you train it with a with a with a bias set of data, for for example, it could still come up with biased output. 
the other guy, one of the funny stories I just told some of my colleagues about, and I want to bring up, it, there was a it was a machine learning thing uh, where the software engineer had his had a Roomba, and if you you know he he wanted to train his Roomba to learn the layout of his room, and so the Roomba it has a little bump sensor in the front, so it just kind of pongs around your room, and when it hits something, it backs up and tries again, and so he thought, well. Well, I'm going to put an algorithm into this machine that will learn that when it bumps into things, that's bad. And so he he developed this algorithm by which there was a, a demerit system or a punishment system for every time it bumped into something. And the idea being that it would eventually stop bumping into things that would learn where things are and stop bumping into them. And what he found instead was that he trained his Roomba to go backwards because there are no bump sensors on the backside of the Roomba. Oh, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. Okay, so yeah. that you've given uh, one example about how this is affecting us in everyday life, but there are several. Um, I know that we've talked about, or, or I've looked at things about, you know, health and life insurance uh, applications, credit scores, the you know, the now famous social score in China, and other things like that. Uh, tell us about some other ways in which AI is already being used for and against us today. So the China scoring, um, the social scoring is controversial for political reasons, for social reasons, for ethical reasons. And in fact, it is um, one of the reasons why we included a particular principle in the university gu universal guidelines, which um, prohibit those kinds of unitary scorings because of the discrimination capability. Explain what that what it is for the audience. It, a lot of people may not have heard of this. Right. What is what right. is going on? So the social scoring system was actually put in place by the Chinese government um, a few years ago, about 2014 or so. And what it does is it, it is monitoring and surveilling citizens of the nation and creating a record of ways in which they behave in society. And so we're not simply talking about breaking the law, driving too fast, um, these kinds of things, but we're also talking about perhaps minor, what we would consider minor infractions, social infractions of walking your dog without a leash, um, stepping in front of someone on the escalator oh on the way to the, sub the subway, um, not giving up your seat. Wow. And these Thing. So social behaviors that are presumed to be good behaviors for society and then surveilling citizens against those assumptions those the, and giving them demerits, if you will. And um, so it's troubling for the surveillance um, capabilities. It's troubling for the discrimination capabilities. Um, but there are also uh, significant consequences in terms of the way the system is being used to prevent citizens from participating in the society in certain ways. And so the best example is um, the prohibition of being able to get a train ticket to travel. Um, or fly in certain ways. And so the recent reports, in fact, there was something just a couple of days ago about, um, I think, 14 million um, Chinese citizens have been prevented from buying plane tickets because their social score was too low. Wow. So then we're talking about economic consequences, not just your freedom to travel, um, which is a basic human right, 
but your ability to earn an economic living. Many people, particularly in China, depend upon public transportation to get to work. So not being able to, to travel on the train means not being able to work. So there are some very significant, it's not just um, the loss of perks in your society, but loss of fundamental rights that allow you to live and have a quality of life that we feel are universal across the world. Well, and then we think of this, okay, China, they're known for surveilling their citizens. They're known for being authoritarian. Uh, we think, oh, that can't happen here. But uh, in subtle ways, we, these things are already happening here, not just in, you know, maybe we think of marketing and Facebook and Cambridge Analytica and those kind of th situations, which we should definitely discuss. Uh, but I read an article recently about how computer algorithms are being used in sentencing recommendations in the U.S. for criminals, um, looking, you know, digesting a bunch of data and trying to give the, the judge some sort of input on how likely, I don't know what the recidivism opportunities are. I'm not sure, maybe you know more than I do, but these are having, these are already being used in the United States. And not just, this is not just something that's happening in China. Yes, absolutely. So there is a really important court case that is um, working its way upward through the courts based upon a, a man named Loomis who sued because essentially what has been used is in criminal sentencing, the judges use a, an algorithm which predicts the risk of recidivism. Recidivism means reoccurring uh, crime. And they use this algorithm to determine how high their risk is and therefore, they modify the sentences that they um, that they recommend based upon these risk results. And so, the case is about a man who felt that he was unfairly labeled a high risk, and therefore not given due process to understand how that recommendation was made, um, given access to the algorithm. Um, but also loss of liberty because he was spending more time in jail as a result of the sentence uh, recommending, recommendation. So the COMPASS algorithm upon uh, which this case is built essentially is a standard um, risk prediction algorithm. Things that are used in many other industries like life insurance, as you said, my, my son was an actuary for a while, mm. so I'm familiar with these things. So um, the idea is to gather as much data, as many data points as you might to be able to accurately predict the risk of someone dying or the risk of someone committing a crime and using that to supplement the decisions you make about whether or not to get them insurance, whether or not to give them, release them from prison and these kinds of things. The problem with this, um, if I haven't already indicated that, is that the accuracy of the algorithm, the predictive accuracy of the algorithm was not that great, about 65% accurate. Mm. Now, when we're talking about statistical prediction in terms of being able to explain social behavior, 65% is pretty good. <laughs> when we're talking about something that has significant consequences for someone's life, 65% is barely better than chance. Mm. So most people in their mind wouldn't say this is something that I would depend on. Now, the judges argue that this is just one among a set of tools that they use 
to decide what to do. And that's fair. But the problem is that due process is not being provided because the makers of that algorithm have claimed that it's proprietary and therefore they're unwilling to release mm -hmm. so that people understand how the decisions were made. And that gets into the big problem, not only of fairness of algorithms, but of transparency of algorithms so that human beings have a right, particularly in these kinds of situations, to be able to understand how these decisions are being made by an algorithm or a machine or something. I always, I've brought this up on the show before, but if you haven't seen the movie Minority Report, it's worth watching because uh, the idea of the movie Minority Report, of course, science fiction, um, is that they have these what they call precogs. And in, this, in, in the movie, they're like some sort of weird beings that can see the future. But in, you know, in our uh, analogy here, we're, we're talking about computers doing this, and, and it's the or age of pre-crime, where these things predict when a crime is going to happen and the person is actually arrested before it, before it occurs. And of course the basis of the movie is that sometimes they get it wrong and uh, you know, that, that, that leads to the plot. But we are, for instance, I, I I've read that like uh, where in the UK where there's a lot of surveillance cameras, uh, they're mm -hmm. uh, some of the things they're using. And that's not just facial recognition on these cameras, but actually looking for like violence, like trying to analyze a scene and, you know, maybe look for guns or look for somebody who's hitting somebody or things like that. Is is that actually happening today? So, yes, surveillance data is being used to assist law enforcement in important ways. I want to make that point first, that um, the ability for law enforcement to have at their fingertips data that will help them to identify um, perpetrators of crimes that have been committed, I will make that important point, not predicting them, but have been committed, is important to our society and our ability to keep order in our society. Um, the problems come with being able to use that to predict. Um, the UK is one case, uh, there's another in Chicago, for example, in which they're using um, heat mapping of crimes that have been committed to identify high-risk neighborhoods and then suggest that they need to have more criminal monitoring of people who are in those neighborhoods. And it turns out that the um, it's based upon flawed statistics mm. um, and metrics. And by metrics, I mean that when we have these predictive algorithms, we have to decide what are the factors that go in to help us predict that a behavior is going to happen. Um, is it their age, their gender, their race, the fact that they've um, committed a crime before? So there's a decision already that goes into deciding which metrics are going to be a part of that algorithm, which um, can be flawed um, if, if it's not, if it doesn't have validity in, in certain ways. And so Chicago, an example of when they found that actually not only were they not predicting as well as they thought they would be able to do this, meaning anticipating future crimes, right. taking it back to the minority report, but they also were increasing the risk of falsely accusing people of being involved in a crime because there was a framing, there was an expectation that this is this neighborhood and therefore, even though I may not be sure because of the location, then I'm going to assume that it's likely. 
So there's a discrimination uh, possibility there. But um, when we were talking about not just um, using heat mapping in China, but also, excuse me, in Chicago, but um, the surveillance systems in the UK and in other parts of the world, facial recognition, for example, is, is something that's being used as a tool already in the United States, not just by law enforcement, but by industry as well. Now, image recognition as an element of artificial intelligence has some fantastic opportunity for improving our society and our public health. For example, when I was at um, MIT in January at a uh, meeting of people talking about AI policy, and oncology researcher was making a presentation about the way in which they use artificial intelligence for um, breast images to be able to increase their prediction and early detection of breast cancer in a way that can save a half a million lives a year. Wow. It's a good thing, something that we would all want yeah. to be a part of. But what they need in that image recognition is lots of data because lots of data means that the reliability of your prediction is going to be stronger. And therefore, your, your benchmark, if you will, gets better than 65%, that it might be 80, 87%. Um, and you don't want these false positives. So lots of data makes a better algorithm. But lots of data also creates privacy risk mm for people who are sharing that kind of information, depending upon who has authorized access to those data. So it's a, it's a bit of a hard problem. Most people would say, if we can save that many lives, my mother, my sister, my daughter, maybe one of the people who, who benefit from that early detection. Um, it's good for public health. It's good for society. It's something that we should get behind, and we absolutely should. But it needs to be done with the right kind of oversight and the right kind of um, safety precautions, a risk assessment to ensure that we're still protecting the privacy of individuals who might be sharing that data and uh, contributing to that data. Which is also one of the, uh, this is a bit of a uh, segue, which is also one of the concerns about how the United States government and um, the White House is currently looking at, about, at the strategies for artificial intelligence research and development in our country. There's a concern that China is racing ahead of the United States in the achievements that it has in terms of artificial intelligence development. And one of the reasons this is a concern is that there are there are feelings and concerns that they don't have the same kind of caution mm. to protect the of individuals through the data that they access and the data that they use and the developments that they're doing that we have in the United States. And we're proud of our standards. We're proud of the uh, risk reduction that we have through the FDA for drug approvals and these kinds of things. But it does slow down things. And so from an executive level, slowing down the development of artificial intelligence is, is almost been framed as like the space race mm. of the 1960s mm. in which we wanted very much to um, go to the moon and be the first to get there before Russia did. 
there's very much a political gaming that goes on to achieve that um, technological advance before another country does. And so uh, something similar is happening right now between the United States and China, which is um, has political implications and, and policy implications for how we take care in, in designing AI systems. So again, it's a bit of a segue from what, but this is, this is an example of how China has been using, they have lots of data, they have lots of people in their country, and they generally uh, do not have the same kinds of cautions about using the data that's available to them. And as a result, some of their predictive algorithms and um, other kinds of models that they are building are further ahead than we are because they, um, they have more data. Very fascinating. And uh, we'll definitely talk about that. That's going to be a great lead up to the to the principles you guys have outlined. But one more thing I'd like to touch on before we kind of walk through your guidelines um, is the is the use by corporations for marketing purposes. Um, certainly privacy has been a big issue with Facebook and Google and some of these other companies and what they how much we are being tracked and how little most of us understand and can understand what's going on because it's so opaque. Um, but, uh, you know, the way I've kind of thought of it is that, you know, initially we were just being observed. Uh, we were watching what our behaviors were. Uh, and then at some point we're, you know, they started to predict, you know, what we're going to do. And now it's, I think it's come to the point where we are actually being actively influenced and Cambridge Analytica was, it was one of those. And of course that was political, but for marketing purposes as well, if I can guide you to a product um, that you might not have known you were interested in, or I could cause you to become interested in it because I've under, you know, I've modeled human behavior and realized that if I present you with certain stimuli, then I can get you to, a, you know, buy this product. I don't think we're far away from that. Um, there's a, there's a group called open AI group and open AI. And uh, I think it was founded at least in part by Elon Musk and, um, they had a really interesting story lately about some, they were doing some research about generating fake, basically news stories or fake, fake text content. And all they would do is just give a short one or two sentence prompt to their system and their system who looked through Wikipedia and Reddit and all these uh, online forums where people discuss things and, and news stories uh, was able to generate uh, some scarily accurate text about something that was completely false, like unicorns, uh, somewhere, um, or potential bombings and thefts. Um, so I was just curious what your thoughts are in terms of how, of how AI is being used, uh, for corporations and marketing purposes, aside from some of the governmental and law enforcement stuff we've already discussed. Well, um, as you indicated, I think the most significant, um, wake up call took place with the 2016 election in recognizing that, users of social media and Facebook specifically, but not only Facebook, also Twitter and others, could be manipulated very in very subtle, unrecognized ways to influence the opinions they had about political candidates or even political issues that were, um, were dividing issues for deciding whether or not to vote for a certain candidate. Um, the fact that this was done without being explicitly recognized was disturbing to a lot of people, even though many people who have been involved in political campaigns would be saying, well, we've had television advertisements that have been doing this in many ways for years. 
it seemed to be more oblique. It seemed to be less obvious. It wasn't listen now for 90 seconds as I tell you about my my issues and campaigns. It was somehow inserted in ways that we believed other people were talking or we believed people that we thought would be credible were, were sharing this information. So there was a great degree of fraud and uh, deceit in these. Again, the reason it became a watershed moment in finally getting legislative action about privacy was because there's a suggestion that the outcomes of the election were specifically influenced. That's number one. The second was that it was done through and by foreign agents rather than our own campaign workers and these kinds of things that we might complain that they were using unfair tactics. Unfair tactics is one thing influenced by another country into our democratic elections was a startling change. Yes. So that um, it's definitely the case. What happens with deep fakes is that it's taking it to a new level. It's not just constructing text that looks credible and looks to be coming from a credible source, but it's using the images and videos to give additional authenticity to the material that's being shared. So somehow we're more likely to believe something that, that's being uh, displayed in an image rather than simply text. So that is being manipulated in, again, insidious ways. And so that, um, that's, that's, that's a concern, whether it's about political campaigns or whether it's about other kinds of things. We've had influence and influence marketing for decades. That's not new. But the means by which that can be done and the means by which it can be done deceptively um, in with very significant consequences like our democratic government um, status is what's a major concern right now. That made me think of a couple of things that uh, just blew my mind in the last uh, month, I think. Maybe some of these go back a little further uh, when you talk about deep fakes and um uh, first of all, I saw there was a, I think it was a Golden Globe or a uh, speech from Jennifer Lawrence. And she was up at the podium and giving a speech about, you know, whatever. They were, they were asking her questions afterwards. But they had taken Steve Buscemi's face and superimposed it on hers. And you, other than the fact that, you know, it, mm-hmm. it was Steve Buscemi and you knew that that was not Steve Buscemi, you could mm-hmm. not tell that it was superimposed. You could not tell that it was stitched onto her face. Her, the expressions, uh, they had him saying what she was saying, and it looked it looked just like it was just, it was stunning. It looked real. Absolutely real. Yeah. yeah. And so, again, we we talked about, 15 years ago, we talked about Photoshopping yeah. kinds of things. You, the National Enquirer would Photoshop somebody's head on something else and, you know, claim so-and-so was at the beach with somebody else. Uh, so we got, we got inured to that. Um, we got used to that, but using it in video is a new talent and a new skill that can be used, again, on the dark side in ways that um, are problematic. So we've talked about the good and the bad. Now, so, and I'm sure that your guidelines take both into account because there's there's so many great things we could be doing with this data and, and things that we hope we can do, but we have to do it with somehow not and, and keeping the bad things in check. So let's, at the, let's, it's time. Let's talk about your guidelines. Walk through them for us and, and kind of explain to us, you know, based on what we've talked about, what these things are geared uh, to prevent and to actually encourage. 
So because of the level of conversation and discourse uh, reaching a heightened sense in the last year, in 18 months, um, there have been a number of organizations, industry leaders, governments, and so forth, which has said, maybe we need to look at how to regulate or at least how to guide the design and the development of artificial intelligence and also consider whether or not we need to regulate this through institutional policies, codes of conduct, ethical codes of conduct, um, and potentially law. So it's been a part of the discourse for, I'd say, a good couple of years, but definitely in the last year, a number of people have been researching this and writing about this. So our intent when we developed these universal guidelines um, last summer and early fall and released them was to ground these guidelines and these principles in human rights protection. And there is a significant bit of history internationally around using the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was passed in 1948 and recognized by many countries around the world that these are basic human rights that deserve protection in our law and in our policies around the world. So whether we're talking about privacy protection, whether we're talking about artificial intelligence, whether we're talking about other kinds of things, these are fundamental rights that have been agreed upon that are universal. And the reason that's important is that because we are in a global society and a global economy, um, the, the products that we are making, the systems that we are designing are very rarely going to be local, not only to our nation or local to a particular industry. Um, they really are implemented and put into place um, globally. There are exceptions, but defining international law is, is very, very complicated. Mm. But if you could take the approach of creating some guidelines that can then um, undergird the development of law and policy around the world, then we can have a consensus on what we think is principled approaches to the design and development of artificial intelligence, regardless of the industry, regardless of the country, and regardless of who's involved. So that's what we've tried to accomplish with this. And so the universal guidelines are 12 specific principles. Um, some of them are stated as rights, some of them are stated as obligations, and some of them are stated as prohibitions. First and foremost are what we, what I'm going to call the big three, in which that there is universal acceptance right away by all people who are, de are designing policies around artificial intelligence, that there needs to be transparency, there needs to be accountability, and there needs to be fairness. Fairness has been a big part of the um, discourse in the last year because of the recognition that bias in algorithms is much more problematic than they assumed. It wasn't assumed for a long time. People felt that if you design something mathematically and you have a statistical prediction, it must be good. It must mm -hmm. be true. And so the recognition that the ways in which bias can creep in, which we talked about earlier, is something that's led to an adamant uh, protection of fairness and an obligation or um, the, the obligation of designers to ensure that what they're creating is fair. 
Um, transparency, we've also talked about that in terms that individuals have a right to be able to understand what is behind what has been developed. Um, that is um, not as simple as it seems to be, particularly when we get into very complicated artificial intelligence system in being able to explain how the machine reached um, a decision in self-driving cars and these kinds of things. It may not be so easy as to say step A happened and therefore B and C, um, and, but it certainly is a right and it's an expectation that we should have um, to be, be able to understand that there is transparency there. And then the last one has to do with accountability. And accountability essentially indicates that there is an expectation that whoever is involved in designing and developing and implementing and maintaining these is accountable for the consequences that come from this. And that development should only be put in place only after um, there's been a sufficient level of assessment of the risk involved and a determination that it meets. Um, for those who are involved in engineering, this is a standard part of all kind of product design. You reach out, you set a benchmark, and it needs to be able to pass 80% before it even gets off the design prototype board and these kinds of things. But there's a startling lack of benchmarks in AI. 65%, for example, to predict right. recidivism rate right. should generally not be a benchmark that we want to have. 99% may be impossible to reach, but it really depends upon the circumstance. It depends upon the context. Are we talking about autonomous weapons? Are we talking about self-driving cars? Are we talking about algorithms that determine our credit risk? Um, what are we talking about? So the consequences also um, drive questions about the confidence level that we need to have and the accuracy and those kinds of things. So those are big three. I'll stop there and let you ask me some questions and I'm happy <laughs> to talk about others as well. Uh, no, that's great, actually. And it, I would just I could, let's keep going through it. You've got about a dozen of these here. So if, if you would just walk walk through the remainder of these and just with similar okay. explanations and let us know where these are coming from. Okay, so the in, embedded and connected with those fairness, accountability and transparency, uh, transparency are two others that I would indicate. And one is the right to human determination. And this is similar to what we talked about with the compass algorithm. Um, there is another case of algorithms being used for performance evaluation of public school teachers in California. And those that score low on those performance evaluations, again, evaluations done by algorithm, meaning based upon data and metrics that have been determined to decide whether or not that makes you a good teacher. Um, and based upon the results of that, you will be, can be, and have been fired from your job. So the right to human determination states that even with the presence of algorithms that are being used to make our decision-making more efficient, whether it's in the public school systems or whether it's in our HR recruitment systems at Amazon and so forth, that there is a right to have a human being review that decision and um, recognize that there may be other factors that are not consider, are considered in the algorithm, glowing letters of recommendation, these kinds of things, um, that as individuals, we have a right to that determination for our job, our credit, um, our medical assessment in these things. We have a right that those decisions will at least in a final run be made by a human being. 
identification is, is an obligation that is also attached to accountability and that it, we also have the right to be able to identify who is responsible for that. And now that, again, can be a complicated thing. Anybody who's involved with engineering or even computer science knows it's done by teams. It's done in a modular approach. So I, I do this part, you do the next part, and so forth. So we're talking about a lot of people, but there's a, a responsibility to have a providence of the people that are involved so that if there is an error and there's a problem, we know where to go back, where to find it, and help determine accountability there. The next set of obligations on there have to do, they're more focused on data protection. And this is an important recognition that the quality of the data that are being used in decision-making algorithms and decision-making artificial intelligence systems is just as important as the quality of the algorithm itself that's being built. Um, so one of the obligations have to do with the accuracy and the reliability and the validity of this. And I, I mentioned in, uh, a case before, an, an example before with Amazon, building this algorithm on primarily a male data set, which lent it to be biased in favor of men. This could also be raised as a validity um, obligation that if you create a data set that is primarily based on the Western culture and you implement your technology in an Eastern culture, there's going to be what we call external validity issues that you are not um, using sufficient data and the right kinds of data um, in order to shape your algorithm, shape the predictions, shape the actions that robotic machine or other kind of intelligent machine might take. So ensuring that the data as well as the decisions are accurate and reliable is an obligation that we have. Anybody that's involved in artificial intelligence needs to have. Data quality, similar to that, in that this is very, very important when we talk about particularly social media issues in the last year with privacy. And if you recognize the um, extensive industry of data brokerage, and data brokerage essentially is built upon the fact that we have commodified data about individuals, digital data about individuals, and that um, is used simply in, in many, many ways, but used for advertising for social media um, institutions like Facebook or something like that, but used also in many industries for insurance decisions and so forth. The provenance of the data helps us to ensure that the data that are being used are good data, not necessarily just sufficient data, not just that we have enough of it, or that we have the right kind, but that it's accurate, for example. So, for example, my name is pretty unique. I don't think I've ever found another Lorraine Kisselberg in the world. Parker is a fairly common name. Carrie, not so common. But you might have a few cases oh, yeah. in which oh, yeah. somebody knows another Carrie Parker, and there's data about that Carrie Parker that's attached to you and it's not accurate, but it's being used to make 
um, decisions about your credit. It's being used to make decisions about whether or not you are employed by this next company. So understanding the provenance, which essentially is where did that data come from and who was responsible for it so that if we're not quite sure that it's correct and accurate, then how can we track that down? It's an obligation that we have when we're so dependent upon good data. The next two have to do with safety and security. And it really is relevant not only to algorithmic decision-making, artificial intelligence, but particularly it's important for physical devices. Um, so there are, when there are public safety risks or individual risks that are involved with devices and technologies that are being developed by artificial intelligence, we need to have the right kind of risk assessment tools that are involved to ensure that it is safe. Obviously, we think about self-driving cars as the best example mm -hmm. of a public safety obligation to know that before we deploy that car on the road, that the decisions that it's making and even the ethical decisions that it's making about whether or not to avoid a pedestrian in the road, um, but potentially injure your passengers in the car, these kinds of ethical dilemmas, which are very difficult to encode in an algorithmic way. But there need to be decisions made about the benchmarks and the standards, how accurate, how reliable does this need to be before we're ready to put those cars on the road. Um, and cybersecurity obligation, of course, is recognized that cybersecurity is one of the greatest risks of the 21st century in terms of our vulnerability against threats outside. But that can be, obviously, we think about military uh, systems, but it can be financial systems. It, it can be embedded systems in the human being that potentially are open to malicious attack mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and manipulation outside. So these are standard safety and security obligations that should be included in all kinds of technology design and development, but particularly AI. Um, the last two, and there's one other than there's three, um, have to do with what we call prohibitions. And these tend to be a little bit more political, and but not drawn from a vacuum, drawn from a recognition that the gathering of data, massive data about individuals is something that has been going on for a couple of decades um, by industry and shared with government as well. Um, we have specific legislation which restricts the governmental use of data about individuals um, that are grounded in our constitution. But there are not similar restrictions on industry. Mm. And they've been allowed to rampantly collect lots of data. But what that leads to when we talk about this is, is not just the collection of data, but what's being done is, is the creation of data profiles about individuals. And the next jump from profiles is the assumption of what kinds of behaviors these individuals are involved in, and therefore the potential for di discrimination, as well as a risk of loss of liberty, loss of um, economic opportunities through mortgages and, and um, insurance and these kinds of things, potentially loss of health status. 
Um, the prohibition on unitary schooling focuses on the national government rather than industry. And this is the example that we've used with China's social scoring system, in that specifically a government, traditionally the power of a national government um, in balance with the rights of an individual citizen is something that has been well protected in democratic societies, not as well protected in non-democratic um, governments. And so this is a recognition that there are so many consequences involved, human rights losses that are involved in that, that we think that this is a prohibition that should be encoded in policy and law as well. And the last is what we call a termination obligation. And this is really not as um, unusual as it might be at first read, but essentially the term ob obligation is saying that we have an obligation as an institution and a creator of an AI system that if the AI system is no longer performing in the way that it was designed to perform, and what we're implicitly saying here is that through adaptive learning, that the intelligence of that machine has reached a point in which it is performing in a way that might be destructive to individuals, to our societies, and so forth, that we have an obligation to terminate that AI system. Um, now, if, we, if you boil this back down to, for example, aircraft control systems, we have always had something uh, in place where we decommission machines that are no longer functioning as well as they should. And I don't mean just broken down, but somehow they're no longer able to process the, um, the instructions that are given to them, or they're just awry. They've just gone off path, and we can't fix it. We have always decommissioned these kinds of things. I think the other example that I would close with, the termination obligation, and it's related to the right to have human control over a system, has to do with the aircraft crash that took place in October in Indonesia. And this is a Boeing aircraft that crashed and killed, I think it was 280 people that were on board. What happened with that was that there was a sensor that was replaced on the airplane and it was malfunctioning and it was telling the control systems that the airplane's nose was coming up and therefore it was correcting by realigning the airplane. But instead, because the nose was not up in trying to realign it, it was putting the nose down. And this happened over a period of 11 minutes of a flight. 11 minutes, it happened 20 different times or more. And so this is literally a sense that every five seconds, the pilots were wresting control back from the artificial aircraft control system. And um, they were ultimately failed. And they were not able to get control back. And it went wow. into a nosedive and killed everyone on board. Now we can argue that aircraft control systems have been in there for decades and they do good things. They create more accurate flights. In this particular case, the problem laid with the fact that there was um, malfunctioning in the sensors and there was a lack of knowledge among the pilots on how to turn off, get human control back 
from that system. And because they were not able to get human control back on that system, that's where the plane crash happened. And so this is an example of the the um, ways in which we need to think about the potentially disastrous consequences that can come and ensure that as a part of the design, there's, there's a recognition that sometimes things just may not work the way we need them to. And we need to be able to turn it off and get human control back in there. Wow. Well, that's really fascinating. And it's obviously a very interesting set of rules. And it's interesting that we are at the point in our civilization where we need a set of rules like this. Uh, because of the technologies that we've come up with, it's, you know, it, it, there's often this, you know, just because we can do something, should we do something? And I think your rules take that into account. And obviously there's many, many good things that come from this as well. So this is a difficult subject and I'm sure you've really struggled putting together these guidelines. And, uh, obviously you're going to have some uphill battles getting these things adopted worldwide, you know, and all the companies are going to say these algorithms are proprietary and, you know, I'm sure that there's going to be a lot of, but at least, you know, it's a great first step. And I uh, applaud you guys for all the work you've done to do this. Uh, so uh, wrapping up, the audience is, if we pique their interest in this, um, how as a layman might we stay up to date uh, on this topic? How do we, f uh, do you have any websites or books or things that you might recommend for people uh, that want to take a step further and keep involved? Um, I'd, I'd love to be able to point you back to the EPIC, the Electronic Privacy Information Center site. They're the one who have coordinated the development of the Universal Guidelines. It's essentially put out by a coalition of non-governmental organizations around the world. Um, it's been the guidelines themselves have been endorsed by uh, close to 350 or 400 experts and organizations around the world. But um, point to the EPIC side where you will see the work on the universal guidelines as well as the work on algorithmic transparency as well as references and resources about those topics. That would be the best place that, um, that I would start with. Also by following that in there you can see the developments that's happening nationally and internationally in terms of policy creation and refinement. So right now, the White House has just 10 days ago, I think, released an executive order about artificial intelligence in terms of, I will borrow the language, unleashing the data that is held by federal agencies so that it can be shared with artificial intelligence researchers to ensure that we develop the best that we can in terms of artificial intelligence. I am a believer in good artificial intelligence, don't get me wrong. Um, but it, it gets back to the sense of racing with another country and ensuring that we provide innovation capabilities in the research, which is good. But there need to be, there need to be um, oversight and regulations in place to ensure that we're doing this in a humanly good way. Agreed. And as far as, um, I don't know if you have a rec any recommendations for how people, if they if they really want to get out there and advocate for these things, obviously there's the standard, you know, call your res representatives, go to the town halls kind of uh, advice in our politics in the United States. I, I will throw, throw out some other examples, though. I, I, uh, there have been cases, very recent cases at Microsoft and Amazon, for example, where they have been developing these technologies and offering them for military use, for example, and where the employees themselves actually got involved and said, we don't like this and have signed petitions and have actually in some cases caused their 
cause things to happen, cause the, the, the companies to back off these kind of things. So there are other things that we can be doing as citizens to um, advocate for positive uses and against negative uses. Do you have any other advice for people if they want to, uh, to get involved on this issue? So um, there's, there are some good examples of employees basically, um, I wouldn't say whistleblowing, but calling to attention that we're not comfortable with being involved with the development of these, even though those projects may still be on the drawing board. Um, we, we find them objectionable on ethical grounds for any number of reasons. I will mention that one thing that has been uh, important in the last couple of years that can help guide professionals who are involved in this is the revision to the code of ethics that are being used for computer scientists, as well as the emerging revisions to the IEEE for engineers in terms of ethically aligned design. Each of these um, recommendations are not just stipulating what's ethical to do, but it's also stipulating what our responsibilities are in terms of reporting concerns about potential ethical violations, um, as well as our obligations as members of the organization to bring that to the attention of um, the leaders of the organization and potentially eventually if it needs to be um, the broader public to bring weight and attention to that. In terms of people that want to get involved, I'd say first, um, we start first from um, ensuring that we're aware of what is ethical behavior in terms of being involved with this kinds of design and then having an intent to act if we see a dilemma and um, then having the knowledge on how we might move forward with that. Again, I would encourage people who are involved in public policy to take a look at these universal guidelines we're currently working with. Um, just right now, we're working with some uh, the organization called OECD, the Organization for Economic and Commercial Development, which is an international organization that was um, oversees a number of um, global issues in trying to help them uh, define their own principles, which again, because it's a reputable, well-known place, will help to inform better law and policy development. So I would encourage those that are interested in public policy to be watching what we're doing with the Universal Guidelines and watch what OECD is releasing in the next month or so um, and draw upon that, meaning we don't all need to be reinventing the wheel um, each time we come up with it. Sure, there are industry-specific kinds of um, goals and objectives that you would draw from this but make sure that we have a broad enough understanding of some of the ethical issues that need to be um, attended to and that we need to be aware of. And that's the first step. The last is if you are very, very interested in public policy development and you want to be a member of a citizen who is actually um, helping to influence these laws, there are some pending bills that are coming in to um, play right now. And so watch for those. Watch for the bills that are coming out. Epic does a really good job of posting um, new releases of bills that might um, ask for public comment about that or might ask for support. And uh, particularly for those that are involved professionally and are experts in this area, provide your expertise. Um, help us in this is an emerging, even though it's been around for 50 years, this is still an emerging field. So what will be defined as artificial intelligence and the critical issues in 20 years 
can look quite different from today. Well, Lorraine, that was a truly fascinating uh, and eye-opening discussion. Thank you so much for coming in here. I know you've, I know you've been sick, and I, so thank you so much for making the time to do this and uh, talking to our audience. I completely enjoyed the time with you, and so I look forward to talking to you again. Big thanks again to Lorraine for coming on the show. She's been battling a cold, and uh, it's a real trooper to, to finally make this happen, so I very much appreciate her coming through. Uh, it's a fascinating topic and one that we really need to wrestle with as a society. And as a, as a software engineer, uh, my colleagues and I need to be thinking about all of these things as we're designing the systems. And just because we can do something doesn't mean we should be doing something. Uh, we've got to keep these things in mind. And it's not just the algorithms, it's also the data. Uh, we get these massive data sets and because in the internet today, we can collect ridiculous amounts of data. And we do. And those can be used for good purposes. They can also be used for bad purposes. And if they're not used properly and carefully, uh, they will bias the results that we throw into these uh, quote-unquote artificial intelligent systems. So uh, anyway, it's a really important topic. It's going to become more and more important as time goes on. Uh, I've got a lot of information in today's show notes. There's so much to follow up on, including some of the organizations that uh, uh, Lorraine was alluding to. So check out the show notes if you want to get some of those links and follow up and, and learn more. A couple more quick things before we go. Uh, I asked a little while back for you guys to leave some reviews on the podcast, and uh, a handful of you guys did that. I very much appreciate that. Uh, I could use more, so if you don't mind, if you're enjoying the podcast, uh, please take the time to go to your podcast app and figure out how to rate the rate the app. I'm sure it's pretty straightforward in, in iTunes and the podcast app on most uh, iOS devices. Uh, you may have to dig around a little bit on Android. I'm not sure uh, where to tell you to go exactly, but it shouldn't be that hard to uh, to find the, the podcast and give a review. If if nothing else, go straight to iTunes on the web, uh, and I believe you can just directly give it a review there. You could just give it stars if you want. You don't necessarily have to leave a comment, but I would love a comment if you'd leave that. Uh, it's really good for helping me find other people. And these things kind of rise to the top more easily in people's searches if there's more reviews, especially a lot of positive reviews. So uh, I would appreciate that if you don't mind uh, leaving uh, leaving me some positive feedback. And if you'd like to support me in other ways, of course, you can go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and look for Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. You'll find all the information there as well. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Great interview today with Lorraine. Uh, we've got some more, uh, more cooking for you in the future, so tune back in next week. And uh, until then, stay safe, and don't get caught with your drawbridge down.